Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery. I'm your host, Chris West. On today's episode, we have Brittany Sitar, the founder of Endure LV, a outpatient treatment facility with emphasis on recreation and physical fitness. Brittany was an awesome guest. She went in depth about her career in the recovery industry, the trials and tribulations of starting a business and starting a treatment center, and she got a little personal with us about her life in general, which was really nice. It's great when guests open up and get personal. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on all the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, yada, yada, yada. We are also on all the social media stuff, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And don't forget to reach out to us. Tell us your story. We want to hear from you. We want to know about our audience. We want to know what you're going through. We want to know what it's like for all of you. We want you to reach out. So go to the website and leave a story. Say hi. Say hello. My co-host today is the wonderful Caitlin Martinez. Enjoy. Brittany is opening a treatment center, yes? Yes, we are currently open. And it is called? Endure LV. So before we get into Endure LV... What was like the first thing that brought recovery into your perspective? So I went to school for my bachelor's. I started in college as majoring in whatever you major in to be a PE teacher yeah, was essentially what I wanted to do. You wanted to be a PE teacher. Mm-hmm. And I had to do volunteer work. I was some sort of human resources or human services class, and I had to do volunteer work for it. And I ended up at LVRC, and they offered me a job, like, right there on the spot, probably because they always need people. And so I worked at their front desk, and I just fell in love with the process of recovery and addiction. I mean, I'd always loved... I was fascinated by addiction, always. Like, I was always been watching shows like intervention mm-hmm. stuff like that and um I just fell in love with it and the process of it and I kind of dove into the program myself just for the healing process I was kind of in a dark space around that age which I was only like 23 or 24 when that happened what um happened? if you do you want to talk about it? just you know typical stuff that uh, you don't really prepare for when you turn 18 to become an adult mm-hmm. And, you know, there was identity stuff and there was, you know, feelings of loneliness and abandonment and just all of that. I was going through a really heartbreaking breakup with a boyfriend that I had been with since I was basically 12 years old. Wow. And, and so it was just a really dark time for me. And, you know, I've always been the kind of person that wants to understand. Like, I want to understand what is going on around me and I want to have that feeling of connection and all of that. And I didn't have any of it. And I grew up in a divorced family. And so that was hard 
For sure. You know, you get that feeling my my both sides of my parents got remarried and had more kids and you know, mm-hmm. it it's not an easy thing to deal with. And yeah. so um I found healing in in Was there like a moment where you were like, Oh not really. Mm. No. It doesn't have to be. It was yeah. more um like gradual. It was very gradual and it was very um it was a lot of work. Like I didn't really come out of that I wouldn't I don't even know how to explain it. That that feeling of disconnection. I didn't really come out of it for probably close to three years of me actually working on myself and me. I, I remember the aha moment of knowing the secret to it all. Mm. And that was, oh, you have to think internally. You have to think in within and you have to take your own inventory and be self-aware. I knew that was a secret, mm-hmm. but um, applying it. A lot was difficult for me. So you were working at a treatment center and you started to kind of look at what the recovery program was about Mm -hmm. and what they were asking the clients or patients to go through. Mm -hmm. And then you started to apply that to your own life and find find healing, even though you weren't necessarily dealing with addiction, but your own stuff. Absolutely. And so there was a therapist that worked there and she kind of threw the book at me and was like, you need this. Oh, wow. You need to do this. Yeah. And so I actually was like, sure, why not? And I did it. And I remember going over some of the work with her and she probably has no idea or can't even remember doing this stuff with me, but it was life changing for me. Absolutely. Like understanding how to be self-aware when the people around you aren't right and and staying kind of level when everybody around you is hot and cold and up and down and the dysfunction of everything around you being able to maintain a happy healthy life yeah and to me that's what recovery is you know addict or not that's where the healing comes in for everyone mm-hmm. so your first uh recovery job was at lvrc mm-hmm you still keep in contact with people there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, I consider them my family. I always say to people that they raised me. You know, did they recovery raised you? They did, and mm-hmm. they, you know, they really did show me a new way of life, and they're still, they're so unconditional with me. You know, it's, I could go back there in a heartbeat. I know I could. I've been back and forth a few times, mm-hmm. and they're always just like, come on back. You That's know? really nice for a to hear about a business because mm-hmm. I don't think mo- many people think of um, places mm-hmm. they've worked as family mm-hmm. or feel like that there's any level of there, it being unconditional. Mm-hmm. That's kind of rare. Yeah. Go to school for being counselor? Yeah. I have a master's in clinical psych. From? From, so I did my undergrad here at UNLV and then I was working at Desert Hope mm-hmm. during my grad school years and decided to go online for that because it was just too difficult to do in person and juggle a job that was, you know. How'd you feel about Desert Hope? I liked it. I did. I I really um, learned a lot about what it takes to be a therapist in this field Mm -hmm. at Desert Hope. Explain. Desert Hope is... A lot of crisis. Mm-hmm. And, um, I used to work there as well, I remember. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, you're doing a lot of crisis management and it's, it can be emotionally tolling on you for sure. You come in in the morning and you have 15 people who decide they want to go home. And how do you deal with that? And so I learned a lot about how to work with families and how to work with, you know, people who are not happy to be there. And, you know, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, I think at one point when I was there, I got a shoe thrown at me. Wow. <laughs> because yeah. I was getting them up and out. out of <laughs> Right? It's fun. You know, people aren't feeling good and they're, you know, I had to learn that compassion and empathy piece and that unconditional, like, okay, I know you're not happy, but I'm going to love you when you can't love yourself. Mm. So working at two different facilities in the past, I'm sure there are things that you really liked and enjoyed about them. And then maybe some pieces you didn't. What are things that you learned or pieces of those facilities or their culture that you want to bring here? One thing that both treatment centers valued was treating the family as well. And so I want to make sure that anybody who comes through here, I'm really focusing on the overall healing of the whole unit. Um, and so we have our family program that we, we've already kicked that up and it's going every Thursday night and that's open to the community and it's, you know, a place for families to come and, work through what it's like to love somebody who's struggling and who's in a dark place and how to not enable and how to set boundaries and how to heal themselves, you know, essentially the program that I went through. Um, because we have to learn how to be happy when maybe some people around us aren't happy. Yeah, I think family work is so important mm -hmm. as a marriage and family therapist. It can be really tough, I think, for people to go through their own healing process and then go back into a family that might still be sick or mm -hmm. might be functioning in ways that no longer serve them and mm -hmm. might be pushing all those buttons that when you're new to recovery, dangerous to push. Right. What was it about these two places that made you want to do something different? What was, what were the things that were missing? What I felt was missing was what happens when they're finished. And, you know, a lot of times I saw, okay, you've completed our program. Good job. And now you're cured. Not, I never heard that <laughs> word. I never heard cured. It was more like, good luck. Mm -hmm. Call us if you need anything. And so my, um, my goal is to have stuff running out of that community piece every hour of the day that whether they're in my program or not, they can be like, oh, there's this happening at noon and I don't have to be there. You know, I don't want to be somebody's recovery. Mm -hmm. I want them to find the practical skills to function outside of therapy. You know, I, I, the goal is to not have you attached to what I'm doing with you. And it's to teach you how to live outside of therapy. Explain your community. I, I call it a gym, fitness center, community center. That I the idea is that people in recovery are creating it and are operating it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying like to be employees or anything like that, but right now we have trauma yoga coming in and just running their groups and it's 
fine, here, here's my key, come in and do it. Um, we have somebody else in recovery who has offered to come and do like boot camp classes and, you know, Pilates and yoga and stuff like that. And that's hopefully going to be kicked up within the next few weeks. But the idea is that there's, you know, we also have Dignity Health coming in and running 12-step meetings. Takes the excuses away, really. Mm-hmm. It takes the excuses away where, you know, I'm sitting in here in a group setting and people are like, well, this isn't even available to me. You know, it's on the other side of town or it's, you know, no, it's happening at noon. Mm-hmm. Next just door. in the door behind you. Right. And so that if that's up and running by people in the community, then once they're finished with treatment, they already are connected mm-hmm. with a group of people that they've been seeing for the last seven to 10 weeks. And so... So essentially you're providing the space and people from the community can get in touch with you mm-hmm. and get a block of that space and use it for mm-hmm. whatever kind of community activity, class, workshop, group that they want to or that mm-hmm. they think might be helpful to the community. Mm-hmm. Very cool. How do they... Um, get in touch with you to do that? Is there a fee? So not yet. Everybody that I've talked to is like, you have to charge these people. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that takes away from what I'm trying to do. You know, I want it to be a resource center and I want, I want people to, um, I'm not sure right now there's not. Okay. But that might change. It might change. Okay. Um, But right now there's not. And the idea is that, There's, you know, eventually hiking groups and running groups and triathlon groups and people are like, hey, let's, and these are all people who are focused in recovery, whether you support it, you understand it, you want to be it, you have been through it yourself. Um, Because what I found is people in recovery, they won't be their true selves. Mm. Like they're not going to the gym and talking to the person next to them about who they are and what they've been through. And they're not finding connection in those spaces. And so I want that to be like an open thing. Like I'm joining this because I'm in recovery and I'm proud of it. So do you mean that people who are in recovery um, tend to want to remain anonymous and not be open about that because there's such a stigma around Mm -hmm. addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is going to be a safe place where they can connect Mm -hmm. with other people in recovery or people who have some interest or connection to recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would love if, if at some point it wasn't so anonymous, you know, where it's like, I'm proud. We've come across that a lot lately. I'm proud of this. And look, I mean, it's, it's an amazing transformation that, I get most of the world doesn't see or understand, but it's something to be proud of. And if we can flip that around a little bit in this community, I'm not worried about the whole world. Right. Let's start here. Let's start in Vegas and and let's, you know, be proud. I've already had people reject me. What do you mean? Just for wanting to promote my treatment center. Oh, we don't want that around, you know? And so it's, you know, and I'm just like, how dare you? Like, right. what do you mean? I'm trying to bring something helpful well, to the I, community, right? I straight up was like, I'm not selling drugs. Did you misunderstand me? Right. <laughs> like, I'm not selling drugs. I'm selling a better life. It just, it, you know, and then I, you know, in the last few months, I've realized what people who are, who have been through right. it, you yeah. know, are going through on a daily basis in their workplace, in 
you know, their gyms. And the only place that they can really be themselves is in a 12-step meeting. And that's, that's sad to me. Yeah, it's sad. So I was at LVRC for three years-ish, maybe a little bit more. And then I went to Desert Hope for almost four years. And then after I had my daughter, I wanted something a little more slower paced. Um, and so I went to an outpatient center, which is Center for Addiction Medicine. I was there for close to 10 months. And then I went to a different outpatient center who ended up going out of business. And that I ended up saying I wanted to buy you guys, but I wanted to purchase their franchise and that didn't work out. And by the time that it didn't work out, I was already so far into the idea of owning my own treatment center. So that's so, where the spark for Endure came from. That's yeah. where I was getting at. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Where the, did that... So Endure actually started. Explain the, Endure because we've kind of been dancing around mm-hmm. physical activity and treatment centers. And I, I don't think we've full yeah. on asked you like what Endure is. Yeah. So I was partnered with somebody at Desert Hope who is a rec therapist. And him and I actually tried to kick something up. About three or four years ago, maybe five, I can't remember, something along around the time I was working there. And um, it ended up not working out. Just it's hard to work full time and focus on something like this. And so... Don't I know it. Right. <laughs> so we ended up dropping the whole idea. Um, and so... It's, hard, it's hard to walk away from a project. It was hard. I was pretty yeah. vet- invested in it. Yeah, it's time. a dream. It's like a baby. I didn't have kids at the time either. And so... You've put a lot into it. So working 14, 15 hours was... Sure, why not? He had kids. He was Mm -hmm. going on his, I think, fifth kid at the time. And so, you know, it wasn't realistic for him to put the... Time. The time outside of work into it. And so I understood that and kind of moved on. And, you know, after that center went out of business, I was like, I was ready. And the idea before was that it was just the community piece that we spoke of earlier. Like the gym part. Mm-hmm. And that we just created a nonprofit and we did a bunch of rec stuff, recreational-based mm-hmm. stuff, and we offered it to the community. And when I presented that to my husband, he was like, you cannot quit your job and start a nonprofit. I'm sorry. Yeah, how do you live? <laughs> right. How do you and eat? And so he was like, why don't you have a treatment center? And start the nonprofit hand in hand. And so that's where we're at. And unfortunately, we have not filed for the nonprofit because it's equally as, as expensive as starting the mm-hmm. for-profit side. And so eventually, I would love for that to be a nonprofit. Right now, it's just... Maybe a I, tax write-off or something. Yeah, like yeah. I just am like, come use it. This like is your I'm passion paying project. rent on it anyway. Like, just yeah. come right. use it and build, let's build a really awesome active community. And so I made sure that I had a space that had a door to most, the most community Most spaces center. have doors, right? <laughs> no. I needed a door that had access to the gym space and a door that had access to the front mm-hmm. where the treatment was going to be taking place so that anytime there was a community activity going on, they didn't have to come through the treatment door. And I could just shut the door in between and they can be operating out of there while treatment is going on. And this is a outpatient? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, PHP and IOP. Explain that if some people don't know what that is. PHP is 20 hours of treatment technically a week. Okay. 
What's I, the, why are you smirking? Yeah, why, <laughs> why, why is everybody laughing? I don't know. Because that's very insurance driven. Right. Okay. And sometimes it's not realistic for people. 20 hours? Yeah. Is like, like too much or too the little? The working population oh. cannot take half days of work to yeah. attend six hours of treatment a day. It's yeah. just not realistic. Mm. And so I smart because I personally, unless you're super low functioning, which, you know. Some people are. Some people aren't. A lot of people who are seeking treatment, and that's another thing with the stigma. Like, addicts aren't always not functioning. Right. You know, like right. they're not living in the gutter with brown paper bags. Sure, there's a good population of them that are. But there are also many people who are driving their kids to soccer every yes, day who are struggling with addiction working and, and working. Right. You know, and it's important that you say this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, PHP isn't always realistic for people. Um, my program, everybody's required to do one week of PHP. And that is because I found in my history of working in the treatment center that you plug somebody into an IOP, which is nine hours a week. It's usually three days a week, three hour groups. You plug somebody into that, that system and you don't really lay a foundation for what to expect and what's going on. So you spend a lot of time in their first week of treatment using that group time that's taking away from everybody else who's been in for three weeks. And another thing I'm thinking about, as you're saying, is is how insurance-driven it is. Mm-hmm. And so for each of those patients, they only have so much time right. in PHP. So if you're right. spending a week orienting one person... Mm-hmm. Um, in group. In group. Other people are missing out, but then also that week is gone mm-hmm. from actual kind of right. material content processing. Right. And if you look at our, our logo, it represents the mind, the body, the soul, and action. And so... And we'll have this logo up. For yes. viewers to see. <laughs> cool. So, Listeners, I guess, to view. Because <laughs> yeah. that was one of my questions. I yeah. wanted you to explain your... your yeah. Ending. And so the logo, what I also found in my experience is that there was always, a, you know, people would hit on those things. But so What are those four things again? The mind, the body, the soul, and action. And so the action is what was missing. And it was here. How is, here's how you treat the mind. Here's how you treat the body. Here's how you treat the soul. But it wasn't an emphasis on you need to do this every single day. And here's how. Mm. Um, and so for the treatment, people who are going through the treatment part of it, there's a project for each piece of it. So there's a project for the mind. There's a project for the body. And there's a project for the soul that they have to complete before they can complete treatment. Can you give me an example? So, for example, the soul project is a service. I was going to ask what, how how does one work on your soul? So the soul... Asking for a friend, not myself. (laughs) (laughs) Is it me? (laughs) This friend sitting across from me. (laughs) So, you know, even if you look at the principles of the 12 steps, um, service work is a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. And... I think that that feeds the soul, and I think that that's important. And it also, if you're if you are starting from scratch and building a project yourself, there's a lot of self esteem stuff that comes. Yeah, it's with really that. empowering. Absolutely, and so, you know, that first week, that PHP week, we're spending those extra hours finding out what your goals are. What what are your physical goals? How are we going to meet those? What are your spiritual goals? How are we going to meet those? And what are your emotional and cognitive goals. Mm -hmm. 
and we create projects for each of one of those. And the physical goal, obviously, is pretty obvious. You know, oh, I want to run a 5K. Fantastic. And we write a treatment plan around that. So there's a big emphasis on physical fitness within indoor? Yeah, I mean, physical fitness slash recreation. You know, if it's not like going to the gym, let's go on a hike. Let's go, you know, for a walk in the park. Like, get out, get your heart rate up a little bit. Because my next question is, uh, what happens if somebody comes in that really likes what you're doing but uh, isn't really physically capable of doing a lot of activity? Mm-hmm. There's modifications for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily about, you know, lifting 100 pounds or, you know, even if it's something as simple as just two nights ago, I sat on the living room floor and I stretched. And something... You know, you carry a lot of emotion just even in your hips and in your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And if you're really working those things, it releases a lot of it. So So it sounds like the physical component is at least like 25% of what people will be doing here. I like to think, and this is kind of how I have it broken down, is about 60-40. Oh, okay. So probably about 60% in the classroom. Okay. It's traditional group setting mm-hmm. and 40% in the community slash, you know, in the fitness center. Do you think there are people that aren't like a good fit for this? Honestly, that's not for me to say. Fair mm-hmm. enough. I think if somebody thinks they're a good fit for it, a hundred percent. If somebody comes in and they're like, I want to be a part of your program, but I refuse to do that 40%, then I wouldn't even consider because it's such a big part of the program. I would refer them, absolutely. Because there's plenty of treatment programs here. So then, yes, there are people that aren't a good fit. Right. If if you're not willing to do the program the way it's designed, you're not a good fit. So in your uh, News 8 thing that I read, um, it said that there were some obvious um, scientific benefits Mm -hmm. from working out. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a scientist. Me either. But... I figured I'd ask what, uh, I mean, again, there are obviously obvious benefits to Mm -hmm. working at more energy. Mm -hmm. Are there some not so obvious benefits? Well, you know, the brain science is what people don't know so much about because... They're not scientists? Well, I mean, it's not emphasized very well. Right, that information is not that accessible to people. It's not, and it's also pretty boring to read. So So unless you're super into it, so... To make it simple, addiction is a disease of the midbrain, which is the part of the brain that processes thoughts, feelings, releases the endorphins, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of it. So when you become addicted, you are operating off of your front brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. and that is where your impulsivity comes into play, your moral choice, your decision-making. So if I have something... So if I, you know, just threw this water at you, mm-hmm. please don't do that. You would register that I threw the water at you, and then you would act on it without comprehending how you think or feel about I mean, it. I'm pretty good at like, if you threw water at me, I'd probably just sit here and like, mm-hmm. right, because your midbrain is functioning. <laughs> yes. Right. When it's not functioning, you would not. You would oh. sock me. Oh, okay. I, I get what you're saying. Because you, I understand. you would. Just you know, react. process. You right. would process how you think and how to feel about it. And those are where we make our decisions, right? So if you 
entering through the recovery process, mm-hmm. the the cognitive goals are to massage the midbrain and to constantly work on how do I think, how do I feel, how do I act when I think and feel this way, right? Massaging the midbrain sounds extremely comfortable. Yeah, it does. It's not. It's really uncomfortable. So if you're comfortable in recovery, you're doing it wrong. And so along with all that midbrain stuff, you have to, you, you, you lose all that pleasure. The pleasure center is all messed up. And so a cup of coffee in the morning on a really nice day is not pleasurable when it should be. Yeah. Right? And so you have to massage that as well. And By just doing it? Right. By just having that cup of coffee in the morning? Sure. But also doing things that will release natural endorphins. So like getting exercise. your heart rate up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Going for a jog, going for a hike, going, you know, rock climbing or those things that are supposed to be exciting, you do it. And so a lot of treatment centers offered as an option. Hey, we'll do this. But when your pleasure center is messed up, you're not going to opt into that. There's no motivation to fun. do it. Right. So we make you do it. Mm-hmm. And the healing happens quicker. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen people have um, breakthroughs when they're moving their body and doing physical things that yeah. maybe uh, wouldn't be possible just sitting in a group room? Yeah. Yeah, could you imagine having severe ADD, which not diagnosing anyone, but people in early recovery have the focus of a gnat and sitting in a college classroom, essentially. For hours. For three hours a day. Mm-hmm. That's so painful. Yeah. Like I just couldn't even, like it's painful for me and I'm... Leading, right. designing the treatment. Yes, And so, you know, even just changing it up, getting up and going into another room and doing something different is, you know, it it decreases the redundancy and the boredom that often is talked about in a group setting. I completely agree. I would not want to sit in a classroom for three hours and feel like garbage. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just leave. Mm -hmm. But And on top of it, so the stuff that happens in the classroom is heavy. Yeah. You know, it's heavy stuff. There's process group, there's crying, there's learning. And, you know, think about a child who's learning. They sleep a lot Mm -hmm. because their brain is starting to settle in with all that new material. As adults, we don't take care of our sleep habits, right? Mm -hmm. And so all (laughs) all that stuff is super, super heavy stuff. And so when I teach that and then I send them on their way to go home, it's just doing in their yeah. brain. And a lot Whereas, of times sleep is so disordered in the early yes. stages of recovery. And so we teach that heavy stuff and then we go have a coping skill to follow up with how we feel about it and what just happened in that classroom. I really like this too, because those are coping skills that people can take with them or come back and it's use again. Free. Right. So if you, you might not be able to jump into a three hour group Mm -hmm. Um, for free, but now you know that you can jump rope or Mm -hmm. do a yoga Mm -hmm. activity or something else wherever you want. Right. Are you trying to jump rope? That was very specific. Uh, I do have a jump rope at home. Thanks for asking. I knew it. (laughs) I'm the world's greatest detective. Um, Can you do double unders? No. (laughs) Then you don't jump rope. No. (laughs) So the emblem that you have is kind of almost like your, um, process of keeping it simple yeah mm-hmm. how'd you come up with the emblem and those four things 
Um, the emblem I created. On Photoshop? Essentially. I'm just, like, <laughs> did you I paid, draw it? I paid somebody to do a logo. Uh-huh. But you and, told them what you and wanted. And they're still working on it. Oh, oh really? wow. Fail. And so I was just like, whatever. And I did it myself. I just told Sarah what I wanted and she made it. I know. And then I made a worse one. (laughs) Now there's two of them out there. Yeah, it's really annoying because you like pay somebody to do a job. I still email them every week and ask them where my logo is. Good for (laughs) you. Where's my money? So it's been like four months. Yeah. It was actually for from like an online site. Oh, let's yeah. give him a name. Where's my money, Gary? <laughs> his name, his name on the email is Alexander. Where's my Alex. money, Alex? Alexander. Give him allegedly, my money, Alex. Give he refuses money. to give my money back. So I'm like, fine then. Satisfaction guaranteed. You will keep working, mm. even though my logo is everywhere already. So what could he possibly do now? He should just copy and paste your logo I, and send I it to you. Literally sent him the logo and said, just remake this. Yeah, clean it up. And Make he, it look pretty. Make it pop. Anyways, <laughs> let's get so, back to uh, how you created the logo. We can circle back on that yeah. in a couple months, see if yeah. it's follow through. But so, if really, wait. If you're listening and you know this, Alex, <laughs> get him to freaking finish this thing. <laughs> Do get your job, like Alex. A, yeah, something I can put on a T-shirt or something. Yeah, I don't know. I'm shaking anyway. my head right now, at Alex. Anyways, sorry. Continue. So the principles of the program were pretty set in stone before I even... How did you come up with those four principles? So I... How did you get to that point where you're like, I want these four things. Honestly, so most most treatment centers focus on those three things. Mm -hmm. And I just really believed in the action piece. And Mm. so I played around with a few different emblems that were, you know, cheesy and fun. And there we go. That's it. <laughs> That's all she wrote. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know. It just came to me. Most of the stuff. That's a good answer. Most just this, came to me is a good answer. Most of the stuff is like you wake up from a dead sleep at 2 a.m. and you're like, okay. Get a notepad, write it down. No, you get on your laptop and you work until 6 and you're like, guess what I just did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you send it out to people and you see what the response is and people are like, cool. Some people are like, that sucked. Nobody responded that way with that one. So I was like. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Stamp of approval. Let's go. Um, Plus, we were launching. <laughs> so you had to have something. <laughs> um, on the YouTube videos that you have mm-hmm. that I also watched, one of the lines that kind of stuck out with, uh, to me was you said addiction is the disease of disconnection. Mm-hmm. So Chris and I chatted about this a little bit, and mm-hmm. I was um, in agreement with that statement. Mm-hmm. But we kind of went back and forth because he thought... Or he said that um, that maybe that's a symptom of addiction, but it's not a disease of disconnection. So mm-hmm. curious what your take on that is. There's not one single client that I have had that has not been able to recognize that point where things became disconnected for them and they became addicted. So I hear a lot. Is it like I'm, a chicken and the egg scenario where it's like what comes first, well, the disconnection or the addiction? You know, dis- addiction is a, a pretty much a disease that lies dormant, right? And I could have it. Anyone who sure. could have it. And the scenarios are what sets the tone for it. And so at some point, you know, you, you think of the retired person 
who becomes addicted when they're like 65. Right. What happens in that process of retirement? You become disconnected from your identity. You become disconnected from your colleagues, all of those things, and then you become lonely. And it's the same thing with everything. Divorce, right? Trauma. Short wires a lot of that thing of, or that piece of connection. And how do we heal? How do we, how do we recover from addiction? We find connection, mm-hmm. right? So I have to find connection somewhere, whether it's in the rooms or whether it's back with my family or whether it's back with my wife or my husband or my kids. Usually you've become disconnected somewhere along the line. And that is what catapults active addiction. If someone um, is struggling to reconnect with family or to develop a social support system, do you think that their sobriety is at risk? Yeah, yeah, I do. I absolutely do. And, and not necessarily even, it doesn't have to be family or what, you know, that traditional family is described as. Right. Some people's families are toxic. Sure. Might might not be something that you should reconnect with. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not even connecting with others, but connecting with yourself. Mm. I'm kind of like the Murphy's Law thing where I feel like it can happen, it will happen. I'm sure there are people out there that can just power through the loneliness. And then not only that, it works for them. Mm-hmm. They stay sober because they're strong in themselves. They're connected to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm I'm on board with the, you at least have to have connection with yourself. Mm-hmm. And typically the disease of addiction, you lose that along the way. Which I think is a little bit more important than connecting with others, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, something else that I think we kind of touched on a little bit was like a spirituality component. A lot of people mm-hmm. might lose connection with their, or maybe they never had a, a spiritual connection. Um, is that important in your treatment program for someone to be spiritually connect- connected? You know, that's really a tough question to answer just because there's so many different forms of what spirituality means. Definitely. Yeah. You know, for me, my journey was I was raised in the LDS church. What is that? The Mormon church. Oh, Latter-day. Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so. Speak in Nevada. Mm -hmm. What? Speak in Las Vegas. There's a big Mormon community here. Yeah. And I never felt connected to the church ever, but we went, you know, I went through the motions and at one point I had gotten engaged to a return missionary just to like desperately, an elder, elder, just to desperately find that connection that it was so obvious in my family that Mm. they had. Mm -hmm. And that was in my early twenties, you know, before. And once I realized like I wanted to be true to, I didn't want to go through life almost felt like I'm lying. You know, I called that engagement off and I was just like, that's not, it's just not me. And I had to find what that, what, what it was for me. And, you know, it wasn't in a church and it was simply for me, it was simple, simply trusting the process and faith. Like I know that I won't be handed anything I can't deal with Mm -hmm. and I know that if I just do the right things the right things will happen and I have to trust that and so what you can't put words to how to do that 
and it's simply just everyone's personal journey, but I do believe that there should be a foundation of the idea and the concepts of surrender and how to do that. Do you think there's a correlation between uh, how you're brought up in the Mormon faith and, I mean, they, they obviously have, you know, pretty good values. Mm-hmm. I mean, besides the religious part, they're some of the nicest people I've ever met mm-hmm. and super altruistic. Um, do you think that has a correlation to what you do now? What do you mean? Just uh, maybe the values that were instilled then into wanting to help people in the recovery community. I never even considered that, but I don't think so. I do. <laughs> Why? There's a nature-nurture type thing. I mean, you could have been anything. Yeah, I could have, but I related so much to being an addict. Hmm. It's the craziest thing because I'm, I never became addicted. But you also wanted to help, and you wanted to, you know... But Mormons aren't the only people that want to help. No, but they are very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> they have a good sense of community. Exactly. And I believe in community. Absolutely. Okay. I'm just saying I think there's probably some type of correlation. And again, I'm not a... I'll ask my therapist I'm, about that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a religious too. man. I, be, mm-hmm. I have my own personal beliefs, but I don't pertain to any organized religion. Now that mm-hmm. I kind of fight in my head these organized religions. So I don't know if there's some pushback against mm-hmm. that for you, uh, but... I mean, there's, I've definitely, like, considered going back to church. Not Maybe not the Mormon church, but, you know, is I think it, it's... Is it the the weird underwear they make people wear? <laughs> what? I've heard this. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. To wear this is my moment to episode. <laughs> Chris has one. He's given one mulligan every episode. <laughs> he gets one moment. Is that your tally? <laughs> Mulligans? This, no, no. This, this is it. No more mulligan. moment over <laughs> No more mulligans. No, really, there is one in episode. It's mentioned every episode as well. What? The Mormon underwear? No. no. <laughs> I was like, wow, you have a thing. Not until now. Yeah. Um, I was like, man, how do you incorporate Mormon underwear into every episode? No. It's a Christmas moment. I have a moment every episode where I... You should do a montage. I go, I go we a little should. dorky. We should. A podcast of... Chris's Chris bloopers. Chris's Mulligans. The Soundhounds bloopers. We'll, um, we'll more famous bloopers. Well. These are gold. <laughs> this is why people are listening. They're waiting. <laughs> so you mentioned that you really identify with addiction, but you haven't personally experienced addiction. Mm-hmm. I have found in this community that if you are not in recovery yourself, but you are working in the recovery industry, there's like a... A little bit of maybe suspicion about your motives. So I'm wondering if you've true. experienced that and kind oh, of how you tough. deal with it. It is tough because it's, you know, I was meeting with, I don't know if you, you guys know Jeff Engel. Yep. Yeah. So he came down here and visited a couple of weeks Joe. ago. Or Joe Engel. I'm sorry. Joe mm-hmm. Engel. Joe Engel. So he came down here and I was telling him about that. Because he was like, you need to go into meetings and post about your yoga. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not for me to do. And it kind of feels like an invasion of a it kind of sacred space. dirty yeah. to me. Yeah, it feels wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I need to really sell myself. 
I just think that like people will trust me mm-hmm. if I just keep doing what I'm doing. Right. If you're doing it from your heart right. and with the best intentions that people will Very true. understand. Yes. And, um, but I have, I mean, my whole career, I've gotten that, you know, when I was really young, it was my age. Mm-hmm. And uh, how are you going to, you're 24 years old. How are you going to, you know, and then as I transitioned, it was, you're not in recovery. And I still get that. I get that a lot. And that was certainly a big hesitation in opening my really? treatment center. Absolutely. Especially a for-profit mm-hmm. treatment center. I was okay with the nonprofit side, but I was definitely like, oh man, like how, you know, and that was something I wanted to ask you guys with your, the name of your podcast, like recover everything, you know, mm-hmm. it's everybody can benefit from recovery and recovery I feel like should not be specific to people in recovery. It's in from reco- addiction, right? From addiction. No, I, I completely agree. Right. You know, because it changed my life. Well, and I think that the I I can understand both sides, right? So I can understand people who are in the community wanting to pre- protect vulnerable people mm-hmm. from um, people who want to exploit them. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there are a lot of people who are struggling with addiction. There's a huge stigma. And so everyone should care about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the more people that do care and who are out there trying to do something, the better, mm-hmm. like, let's all get involved. Let's all yeah. roll up our sleeves and, and try and do something to tackle this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I kind of get the reverse where I tell people that I'm doing a recovery podcast and they're like, Oh, I didn't know you were in recovery. Mm, they just automatically assume that I'm you like, are. Uh, well, no, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just let them take what they want. But so to kind of round this out, um, give us a quick rundown of your treatment center again, and then some lasting bits of information that you would give to somebody who's thinking about seeking recovery. Our tagline has not been mentioned, which I'm super proud of because I came up with that too. I didn't pay anybody to come up with Moment it. Moment of inspiration. It was 2 totally one of those 2 a.m. Yeah. things. Yeah. And so we, you know, I went back and forth with the word fit. Mm. And I was like, I want that to be a part of the treatment center, but I also don't want it to sound like a gym. And so we came up with Faith in Tomorrow, mm. which is an acronym, FIT. Mm. And eventually, Clever. right? Eventually I want that community center to be named something. And I think I've been talking to a few people in the community just about what we can name it and we want it to represent friends and family of people in recovery as well we don't want to single it out to again just people in recovery people who understand it people who want to be involved and to be a part of the cause and so I think it's not in solid gold yet but I think that the community piece is going to be called fit tribe okay which is, you know, faith in tomorrow for anybody who wants to be part of that community. Part of that. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And we want the treatment center to give people faith in tomorrow. And what does that look like for people in long term recovery? What is your what gives you faith in tomorrow? Like that word or that phrase can be applied in all areas of recovery. So I'm super proud of it. Nice. I think that's a perfect way to end. Yeah. Well, faith in tomorrow. For um, listeners who want to maybe host a class, a workshop, an event at your community mm-hmm. center, how do they find you? 
You can go on the website and just email us. What is the website? EnduraLV.com. And you're on all these social... Facebook. You have a YouTube page. We have a YouTube page. Is it at EnduraLV, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Everything is just EnduraLV. Simple as can be. Well, this was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Brittany Sitar. I say that right? You did. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Being so authentic with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Chris West. I'm Caitlin Martinez. Thanks. Remember to subscribe to us on all the major streaming platforms. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that goodness. And send us a story. Reach out to us. Talk to us. We really would like some feedback and just to kind of meet and talk to our new audience.